Hello, over the pond. It's almost 80 degrees in Los Angeles on January 23rd. Uh, this is Andy Lipkiss, founder and president of Tree People. And um, can you tell us, tell us your story? Tell us about Tree People. Tree People, I, I was born and raised in Los Angeles um, in the mid-1950s, and it was a very smoggy city, about like Beijing can be today, um, that it really hurt to breathe. You couldn't see much. And um, I used to breathe steam when I came home from school just to give my lungs relief. Uh, we couldn't breathe deep. Um, it was before there was smog alerts, but still uh, kids felt um, the pain and some, of course, were injured from it. I was lucky. I never got lung disease. But my parents used to send me to the mountains 100 miles away from Los Angeles um, to summer camp at about uh, oh, 8,000 feet in the mountains, beautiful mountain forest, fresh air where we could play. And I grew to love the forest as this escape from the city. But when I turned 15, the rangers from the U.S. Forest Service said uh, that they had been noticing for many years the trees were dying and they were dying at an ever faster rate. And they'd done some research. They figured out it was air pollution that was killing the trees, air pollution from Los Angeles. And um, that if nothing was done, the um, forest as we know it, would be gone by the year 2000. And they basically said, it's up to you kids. If anyone's going to save this thing, the government's not doing it. You're the ones who love it. You know, it's up to you. And no pressure. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it was just a typical environmental education statement, but it fell on the ears of a, a kid who'd been raised in an activist family. And um, and the other kids in my, my summer camp uh, came from similar backgrounds. And we just went, whoa, what can we do? Let's do something. And I said, well, there are smog-tolerant trees um, just that naturally occur some of the the native species aren't affected by the smog to the same degree. And, you know, you could start planting those. You know, and so we did. We spent three weeks in our summer camp um, tearing up an old baseball field truck parking lot that had just had oil dumped on it. Peeled back the tar, dug in truckloads of cow manure that we'd shoveled from a dairy an hour away in very hot land. And broke everything up, built walls, built a little park, and planted smog, sorry, and we planted smog-resistant trees. They were sugar pines, coulter pines, uh, giant sequoias, um, instead of the dominant species, the ponderosa pine, the Jeffrey pine, that were, were dying. So we could see the trees dying in our camp, and we took action, and this these three weeks, if someone looked at us, they would say, my God, those are kids in prison camp because they're swinging picks, breaking rocks, doing really hard work. And yet, for us, it was one of the, well, for me, for sure, and the whole group, it was probably some of the most fun we'd ever had at camp because we were taking on a task. We were using our muscles. We were using our intelligence, and we were doing something to fix a really bad situation. Three weeks' time, we had transformed a piece of dead land into a 
beautiful green space that birds and squirrels and animals were returning to because we planted grass, we planted all kinds of seed, we planted these trees. And we felt kind of naively in a way and also in reality uh, that we had done a healing and there were several things really important about that. One is uh, that the naive part was that it was the critters were coming in to eat the seed that we, that we planted, but we saw new life sprout out of something dead. This was three months after the first Earth Day, so there was a wake up to the need to do something. But the most important thing is that as kids, as citizens, as consumers, we've all told by people, by teachers, this platitude that one person can make a difference, but nobody believed that. And even the people who were saying it were cynically saying, grow up, get a job, you, you know, don't care. Just, you know, you'll stop being a caring liberal person once, you know, once you get to work. And, you know, that's what you need to do because that's how you get on. And, and that, as a teenager growing up in a world that was hurting, I was pretty depressed by that message. I was like, I don't want to be here. I see this world of people being mean to each other, you know, the perspective of a teenager looking at it. And I'm not up for that brutal battle. For what? And that it was such a turning point for me because here, as a group of kids, we took on a project that wasn't small in our eyes, a couple acres, and we transformed it in the face of impossible odds. And it was so powerful that I wanted to keep doing it. And uh, the last day of camp, you know, we're all crying about <laughs> having to leave each other and go back to the mean old city. And our camp director said, if this felt good, take it back to the city and make it real for you. And don't stop. And I guess I'm pretty susceptible <laughs> to suggest, you know, you, you guys are the ones needed to save the forest. And, this, and, you know, we took that on and I went back and I talked my way out of high school classes and into independent study at an alternative school at my, my high school and um, got support for creating a project where I could bring hundreds or thousands of kids to the mountains to restore them. So that was uh, where I got started, and it took me three years of trying and failing to um, make something happen. So, yeah, I, uh, Tree People Now is uh, a 40-year-old nonprofit organization uh, whose mission is to inspire, engage, and support the people of Los Angeles in taking personal responsibility and participating in making this a healthy, fun, safe, resilient, and sustainable urban ecosystem. Uh, that's the mission. Our, our objective at this point is to catalyze an unstoppable shift in Los Angeles to, uh, to resiliency uh, within the next 10 years by scaling uh, a massive effort of bottom-up action, people transforming their, their homes um, and neighborhoods and schools, and the top-down is facilitating um, integration partnership um, amongst agencies who are 
working in separate silos and missing the opportunity to manage the actual living ecosystem here as they manage infrastructure that was designed over 100 years ago. And it's a, an older paradigm than that, that we can't fix until they actually come together to integrate their budgets to create the savings and the resources to help people even do the work retrofitting their homes. So, so that's our work, top down, bottom up. Um, and as you know, the principles and the vision of transition, um, it's all coming to play and it's coming to play quite rapidly now, uh, in terms of pressures on mounting costs in every direction because you know, we're a model of unsustainability with the, the water, the energy, the cash that we hemorrhage in mismanaging the ecosystem. And uh, we've just been, the changes that need to happen can be very simple, um, but to do it right and lasting, they're a little more complex and they can be done quite ele elegantly uh, at scale, not very expensively, but it requires the partnership of the government with the people, one, so they believe that they're making a difference, so they get the feedback that they're making a difference, and if possible, they get the support to do it, and most importantly, so the government changes from being the mom who puts diapers on us, you know, essentially that manages the public as if we're helpless infants and provides us with everything we want energy-wise, water-wise, food-wise, and takes away all our poop. <laughs> and um, and we're not willing to pay mom enough, and mom can't possibly do that job. Um, so we're working both ends of the spectrum. And and uh, could you just? I remember when I when we met, you 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 gave the sort of um, uh, that that quite sort of succinct arguments in terms of how much water LA takes in, how much water LA throws away, uh, that kind of basic sort of case behind your approach. Yes. So. Los Angeles imports 89% of its water. The city spends anywhere from um, $750 million to $1.2 billion per year to import that water and distribute it. Um, meanwhile, it rains and we throw away most of the rain. So we only get 11% of our water locally. The rest of that water comes from Northern California. Um, the, the Western United States and pumping the water to Los Angeles is the single largest use of electricity in the entire state of California, which is the eighth largest economy on the planet. So there's a lot of energy from around the world, you know, used to generate the electricity to pump the water over the mountains to bring it to LA. We're damaging the areas that we're sucking the water from. And then um, the water that does fall here naturally is estimated at today's usage to, to possibly produce 30, 30 to 33% of the water we need in Los Angeles the way we use water today. But if we were to capture it and use it really efficiently, let's say we were to double our efficiency, that would be 60% of the water we need. Well. So according to LA's mayor, today we throw away $400 million worth of water a year by releasing the rainfall. Uh, by the way, 
we pay the city uh, has a a budget for um, stormwater management that's thirty five million a year plus around uh, another eighty million a year to to build um, systems to treat it, capture it, and all that. But their budget's around a hundred million a year. More importantly, the county flood control system, which removes the water from the city and uh, and the whole county, their budgets are around seven hundred million dollars a year. So we're spending towards a billion dollars to remove the water and to remove uh, somewhere between um, four hundred million to eight hundred million dollars worth of water every year, and we're spending nearly a billion dollars to bring in other water from other uh, other areas so we have drinking water and and that's a model of of hemorrhage but it doesn't stop there because half the water la uses is for our landscapes mostly our grass lawns those lawns are mowed and the mowings are collected and taken to the landfill um, instead of being used entirely for mulch and, and water conservation well, the cost of hauling green waste in Los Angeles is another $100 million a year. So uh, what we did is, is and, there's, and there's even more pieces of that hemorrhage. Uh, it's insane because um, the money being spent on the energy, the money being spent to remove this, you know, beautiful biomass rich in nutrients, and solar energy and all the energy in the water that we use to bring it there, we then bury. Um, and so the whole idea is to connect these agencies that's, that all spend this money who don't ever meet. They don't talk. They don't plan together. We actually began when I started seeing this happen, which was in the 1990s. Um, I began trying to bring them together to facilitate some planning. First, they thought I was crazy, but then it, it caught on. and. Uh, we built some pretty amazing partnerships, so we're starting to change the system. So, I mean, from that case that you've set out, it seems like a complete no-brainer that actually that the, the city rethink its its model. You know, so in terms of laying out the economic case, that sort of speaks for itself. But is that enough to shift entrenched positions? It's not because the entrenchment is severe. And it's not bad people, but health laws, environmental regulations, air quality, all kinds of regulations are now built around each one of these entrenched silos. And they're all held accountable for whether something happens to people in a flood, whether pollution leaks. Um, and so there's enforcement agencies around each of the silos, and there's environmental organizations who are ready to sue whenever there's a violation and so in a sense everyone's in a state of bureaucratic war um, and detente but it's it's not easy for them to step out because we have to offer the people who are held accountable we have to offer them really viable solutions you know you say well we'll do gray water and and various other um, good applications but if they can't count on it, if they can't quantify it, they don't want to be held accountable for it. And so we've taken on the challenge of to bring them to the table. We have to say, look, we realize 
we're putting you at risk. You can't take that risk. You can't risk the public's health and safety. So let's build a system that ensures that for you. And let's build in accountability of citizens and various things so you actually ha aren't negligent. You know, the, the, one of the threats to anybody in public works is gross negligence. If something happens, like, why did you build a system that you couldn't manage? And I think the new day is um, what we have with distributed technology smart, willing people is that we can actually build a very reliable, very accountable system that can be managed. Um, that So it includes technology to do that, but it's based on the very principles of, of transition is that people um, getting informed, taking responsibility, first with random acts, but then growing to a, you know, a tight network of not just random, but reliable acts, we can build this new infrastructure. And it's a green infrastructure that's based on human energy, human intelligence, uh, biomimicry, or essentially, you know, the model that we're, we're seeking to um, overlay onto the city is the model of how a forest ecosystem works, in which all energy, all water, all nutrients are recycled. And, um, you know, the rainfall is caught by the trees. And and treated in the soil under the tree in that mulch zone and and slowed down and um, sent to the aquifer and slowed down so it um, doesn't create floods and makes its way to the rivers. The solar energy is harvested, um, turned into nutrients, the leaves fall from the trees and break down and feed the animals and feed the soil and you have a closed loop. We've taken all all those pieces of the beautiful natural forest ecosystem in the city and we've made it one way. The energy comes in and produces stuff, we throw it away. We bring in water from somewhere else, throw it away. We throw away the water that falls. And so there's a simple model of just to understand that how a forest works is the model that we're biomimicking. And uh, Janine Benyus from the Biomimicry Institute, uh, she and I were both asked to give a talk on uh, biomimicry at the system level, and we both came to the same conclusion and both presented that the, the system level biomimicry um, model that makes the most sense is forest for the city. And so that's what we're doing. Um, I know that was a, a huge leap. Let me just backfill and say that um, other entrenched um, forces that aren't evil, again, that, you know, unions, labor, uh, people want their jobs. They've been built on a certain model. And there's a lot of fear in the upheaval of changing policies that might change that game. And so, you know, just trying to get waterless urinals approved for Los Angeles was a major battle with the plumbers union locally and nationally because, you know, they were afraid of losing jobs and if you change the code. And so it, there's a lot. There's a, a, a lot to work on. But it, we're finding that instead of using the angry strategies of war that that people are locked in and lawsuits and all that, that's that's really what's keeping change from happening. We've taken the path of in, trying to inspire and demonstrate what can work and then help people work it out. And in doing that, um, how much of, I mean, because you're clearly, 
you know, you're, you're, you're motivated by climate change, you're motivated by issues around resource depletion, you've, you know, you've a grounding in sort of permaculture systems thinking and so on, in order to kind of scale up and, and mainstream, make what you're doing accessible to the people in the mainstream you need to, what, to what degree do you keep things implicit? And to what degree are other things explicit? How, how do you do that balance? In the implicit, we try to have it be science-based and teach um, in a way that, if we can, is without labels, so people don't have to fall into camps like they do with religions and politics. When we are simply bringing neighbors together to help each other and people together to meet and work together without their labels, there is joy, there is fun, there is love, there's attraction. And that's what we humans are designed for, right? We, the fact that we're attracted to play and fun, uh, that's all things that fall into words like recreation or recreating our energy, recycling our energy. And when we fall into the camps of war and fighting, it doesn't sustain, right? So the model of sustainability is what keeps us re-energize and all that and it's amazing when we can keep politics out of our organizing out of our invitations for people to play they feel so good they are recreating and recycling their energy our volunteers after a hard weekend of work planting trees in the city or in the mountains or watering or whatever they all report that they have more energy than they did um, after a, their their long week of work Everyone thinks, well, you know, let's spend the weekend at home sleeping or with a can of beer, watching sports. They don't wind up with more energy by Monday. Hmm. Our people, when they're out on the streets sharing this energy and then ultimately sharing food with neighbors and all that, um, they come out energized. And we've seen, unfortunately, you know, sometimes I even slip and I'll start using labels and politics. And all of a sudden, even our ranks are divided because people don't know. And we don't bring it up. They don't. They're not aware of the other barriers that that have been so imposed on them until you add it, and all of a sudden, relationships break up. Like, I I can't believe you're one of those. How did I not see that? It's like because they were connecting energy to energy, human to human. So it's important to do that. I mean, it's also important to, if you will, build the tribe because there's such good stuff in permaculture and transition that is feeding people who are seeking it and they can see where to find it. But to actually succeed and go to scale, we have got to see that this is good for everybody. And, um, and then the process of scale is of course, everyone who's listening now and engaged or they're pretty much the early adopters. And I would say first responders, they're aware of the pain. They're not in denial. They want to do something. And so the work that you have done and that, the transition family and permaculture families have been doing has been laying incredible groundwork. And the DIY, the do it yourself and help your neighbors is the strategy that we're starting with first, but we're also, because it's critical that people see in every neighborhood, this stuff is doable. It's more beautiful than the old traditional manicured garden that, that costs too much and wastes too much and doesn't feed us and doesn't make us secure. Uh, when we flip it, um, people are pretty attracted to it. 
But we got to rely on this family to do the early adoption stuff. But the longer term transition, little t, comes from people adopting, and we have to make it that much easier for people to do. And we are. And so, ultimately, my vision is that if we were to take all that money we spend in energy to import water um, and reinvest it in this economy, in human energy, instead of petroleum energy and potentially OPEC, we believe there's as many as 50,000 new jobs in Los Angeles alone, not even having to bring in new money, but just by bringing the different agencies together to combine their budgets and invest locally in developing the local water supply 50 to 75 percent or, you know, by 2050, 100 percent local because we use water so efficiently. All of that generates jobs in helping people transform and manage their their homes and their neighborhoods like a forest where we're capturing the energy, the nutrients, growing the nutrients, capturing and recycling the water. And this isn't, you know, back to it's back to the future. It's not it is. We're not looking at an agrarian society necessarily. It is an integrated new tech, high tech green infrastructure where you've got food local, you've got secure. Some people will take responsibility. At, I, hmm, let me back up and say, I think the new paradigm that we're all a part of transitions from government being mom and centralized being mom who supplies all this stuff to us and takes all our poop away and, and changes our diapers for us to um, and if you break the law, then mom's the enforcer that punishes you um, to the new paradigm where we're all managers of the ecosystem and that the role of govern, government agency becomes collecting and synthesizing the data and feedback to us and giving us the feedback and guidance and incentives and support and even feeding back cash savings out of the system to enable us to be the managers. Now, the managers doesn't mean that everybody has to do their own, you know, mulching and weeding and planting in their home. They may employ people who are trained as the new ecosystem managers, the new green infrastructure managers. So the through line back to how do we provide the safety to government and the, the accountability and the assurance that the new green infrastructure will produce um, better flood protection, better water supply, better water quality protection, better human health protection, is that that energy that we've been spending on, uh, on importing oil to drive the pumps can be used not just to employ people, but to train them and certify them. So we get the equivalent of green infrastructure engineers. Might be that you train yourself to do that and get certified. You're the one at your home, you get a certification number, and therefore you're qualified to receive those rebates. And maybe that you hire uh, neighborhood kids who've gone through a community college training and certification. It may be that you that your, your preferred landscape architect uh, uh, gets that and you have them do it. But it's just transitioning to a system uh, where we all have a role in managing, whether it's just consciousness or whether you're engaged physically and getting paid for it. So the, the, the theme that we've been looking at this month on the network 
Transition Network website has been about scaling up. And, and I know when we met, you had some thoughts about transition and, and, and how it might scale up. I wondered if you if you could share some of those. So, you know, it's something that's gone from nothing in seven years to being in thousands of places. It's got to a certain kind of level. What are your thoughts about what it looks like kicking on from those early adopters, those early responders, if you like, to the early majority? Yeah, so what I just did was frame part of the picture of how that change could happen and, and change the economy um, and where jobs could come and how that can transition. I talked about the fact that the big change can't happen until we take our great ideas and make them reliable and accountable, right? So uh, government can invest in or support or allow or begin to count on this stuff that we're doing instead of just thinking it's cute. Then the question is, okay, how, how does it spread? How does it scale? So the process begins by making government comfortable, making people excited, producing better and better models, holding ourselves accountable. When we say, you know, I'm going to sheet mulch my yard, um, kill my lawn, start producing fruit, engineer my yard in a way that no stormwater is leaving, so I'm reducing that cost to the city, no green waste is is leaving, so I'm reducing that cost to the city. We have to make all that measurable, all of it accountable, so the city can buy in more and more. Um, but the big scale point so, uh, comes when, first of all, we consciously deploy in all our neighborhoods and, and share um, compelling, attractive uh, results. And I believe California may be hitting it right now because everything in the transition vision of what would happen in the world is starting to happen. And it is, of course, accelerating and the pain is being felt. So the question is, are we ready to have the most viable solution there for people to grab when the crisis hits? And we're at a window on that and maybe the window on that right now in California because less than a week ago our governor declared a state of emergency for drought. Now the global climate scientists, the IPCC from the United Nations, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, all of those scientists said California is going to be one of the first places to run out of water. The United States, being in denial, the official state of denial still, uh, has not responded to that call. Uh, but here we are. We haven't had much rain for three years. There's no snow on all the mountains in California. You fly over California, the whole state should be green right now because of rainfall. The entire state is brown. We have just come through the driest year in recorded history. And... Uh, the governor has declared a state of emergency. So transition has, and permaculture has a massive host of solutions that a lot of us have been deploying on our on our homes. And um, the pe people are starting to get scared and wake up. Policymakers are ready to start changing laws. We're, we're hearing from our state capital saying, give us the laws that we need to allow gray water and other things. What, what do you want to put in the packages so we can make the changes happen now so people can take action now? Um, and we're doing that. And we're actually, because of the level of work we've 
done for the last 20 years, um, teaching, facilitating this government stuff, we're actually right at the core of bringing them together to connect and, and, um, and plan in a new way. The challenge is the traditional fears that we have, the old paradigm is still operating, and, and there are a lot of forces in that paradigm that see this as a great opportunity for their business. Um, and that in, in and of itself isn't, isn't a bad thing at all. It's whether it's the right solution or the wrong solution. So, you know, there are companies who manufacture desalinization plants who believe that they've got the right solution. And one of them spends a half a billion dollars a year in marketing and political lobbying. And they're ready. And, and Californians are going to be seeing commercials saying the panacea, you want to make, it's time to make this state drought proof, climate proof. Just spend about four billion dollars for every desal plant, and you know, and we can have this state in great condition. Well, they're extremely energy intensive, um, and they're not the right solution. Yes, there may be a need for some. Uh, you know, the ideal for resilience is a distributed network of different solutions. So if one goes down, you've got some backup, but we have a great <clears throat> story to point to, and that is Australia, who's experiencing severe climate and, and weather about 10, 15 years ahead of California. They went through a 12-year devastating drought that ended two years ago. Um, it didn't rain much in the whole country, and the first solutions that they scaled were were very permaculture style they and given that bill Mullins is from there surprise, uh, the tradition of rainwater harvesting is uh, a countrywide tradition in in australia and uh, from that and they they took it to scale so what people knew from their past or their family or just from um good lore they took it and brought it into the cities and um, government made them cheap. They they subsidized the distribution of these, and millions and millions of cisterns were distributed to people who installed them in their homes, and they captured rainfall. Um, and what happened is, in city like um, Brisbane, where people were using before the drought eighty three gallons of water per person per day, they dropped their water use to thirty three. Why? Because government said, no, you need to stop using, you need to conserve. And then they, they put in penalties if people use too much water. And they restricted use, like don't use tap water in your garden or only use it several days a week. And people began to comply. But the big, big change happened when people were given these tanks. And they had the equivalent of their own visible water bank account at home. And it completely changed their behavior because they had that, they could see it, they were empowered, and they used it really effectively because they didn't want to lose it. Uh -huh. And um, and we can do that in mass here too. We uh, we have been I've been looking at that model for um, 30 years since I first saw people having them in Australia. We envision taking that and um, adapting it as a smart water grid. So. You might be able to store in the fence between houses 
five to twenty thousand gallons per house, uh, and have it be hooked up with remote control, so government can invest in it. They can um, send water your way, or or release water to prevent a flood. Um, use it to flush the streets um, before a big storm in order to prevent pollution. But that kind of smart water network is something that could be deployed very quickly at a tiny fraction of the cost mm. of um, the desal plants. Now, why did I go into that? Um, it's, it is the core of what worked in Australia. So we brought the lead scientists from the Monash um, Cooperative Research Center for Water Sensitive Cities. It's the leading science body on water in all of Australia. Um, it's got a $120 million budget from the Australian government. And uh, we had him here in Los Angeles to uh, meet the heads of the water agencies in, in the region, in the state and in uh, Los Angeles and L.A. County. And I asked him, uh, the first question when I assembled all these key leaders was, when in your 12-year drought did Australia realize that it was in the middle of a 12-year drought? And... I ask that obviously because we have this problem with denial. You don't want to flip the switch and make this change because it might rain at any moment. Um, well, it, I mean, rain sufficiently. And I'm going to actually, it's important that I define that in this. I'll come back to that in a second. He said the place that he marked that wake up call was 18 months before the drought ended when the government decided to invest big time in desal plants in all the big cities. Uh, the problem is they barely were started with construction by the time the drought was over. And when uh, when it was raining, uh, people had so profoundly dropped their water use when um, when the plants were finished. Those that were finished, they're not even all finished yet. But those that were, no one bought the water. They couldn't afford to run them. So they've been shut down. The one in Sydney's been sold. It's being held in reserve in case there's another massive, massive drought. But... People's water bills have more than doubled. The governments in all the states have been thrown out by angry taxpayers. Um, and that is a very important cautionary tale. Mm. Because in their fear, appropriate fear, but um, they were sold solutions that, that trumped what they had done already. You know, we have this faith in the God of technology and that mom, that old paradigm, um, that says, you know, it doesn't matter what you do, we'll handle it all for you, just give us the money. That That's not the answer. It, it, it will bankrupt us. And so that there is that challenge there. There are very good news stories out of Australia. And again, uh, I want to fork the conversation and, and go back for a minute and say in Los Angeles last year, our driest year in history, or in recorded history, it still rained 3.8 inches. Even in the driest year, it rained 3.8 inches. Well, Los Angeles throws away, it, coincidentally, 3.8 inches, sorry, 3.8 billion gallons of water for every inch of rain that falls on the city. That's how much runs off into our streets, storm drains, and out to the ocean. 3.8 billion per inch. By the way, that's a very conservative figure. Some, the city actually says it's double that. But I'm going to use the conservative figure for a minute. So we threw away over 13 billion gallons of rainwater last year in the driest year. 
divide that by the four million people in Los Angeles, that was about thirty-seven hundred gallons, three thousand seven hundred gallons per person. Had they captured it, so um, that could be watering our food gardens, wash, flushing our toilets, doing all kinds of things. It could also allow us to get by and leave some of the water that we're taking from other areas. So one of the places that is LA's water supply is uh, the Owens Valley. It's next. It's on the eastern side of the Big Sierra Range, and the people who live there are Native American tribes. The the Paiute and Shoshone nations, their wells are starting to turn dry because the city's taking all the groundwater as well as the surface water. And, you know, the the need for us to be compassionate managers of the ecosystem includes being cognizant of our impacts on other humans, upstream and downstream. And so it's really important that we not ignore that. And, and most people don't know that that's where their water comes from and wouldn't believe that they're hurting people in this time. But that's what's happening. Um, and let me quickly say that the one really good news story that matches the, this high-end scale model of government coordinating uh, the government of Victoria, which is the state of Victoria where Melbourne is, the new party that came in promised to save the public